Welcome to episode 6 of The Horus Heretics, where we talk about the final part of Galaxy in Flames by Ben Counter. I'm one of your hosts, Neil McComb. And I'm your other host, William Hepburn. Disclaimer from me uh, at the start, London is suffering from outrageous heat and I am uh, almost about to spontaneously combust. So if you all hear uh, a background fan that's blowing a gust in my face, it's the only thing that is keeping me upright at the minute. So I'll try and edit that out, but if there is some uh, per audio quality, uh, that's what you hear. If you hear seagulls, <laughs> that's from William's end, and you know, blame him on that one. But it uh, sounds great up there in Aberdeen, man. It's warm. It's, I'm sure it's not as warm as London, but um, I've got my windows open. We can hear the seagulls, so yeah. Uh, are those like city dirty seagulls or are you near the beach oh uh, well I'm, I'm not far from the sea but I'm in the city centre but there's proper big seagulls in Aberdeen oh yeah and they'll grab your food right out of your hand um, <laughs> at times it's happened to me vermin that's what they are xenos Z- <laughs> xenos filth <laughs> yeah yeah I actually quite like seagulls. I mean obviously that's horrendous when that happens but it's like they're almost like a symbol of Aberdeen because they're so ubiqu- they're so like ubiquitous everywhere and like one of Aberdeen football team's mascots is like a giant seagull known as Sly the Seagull but anyway this is okay. considerably off topic. <laughs> so again we're looking at the final part of Galaxy in Flames. Ben Counter we loved the first part. Will queued us up by saying there's a whole lot to talk about in this bit and my god there is. So let's start off the landing on Istvan straight yeah. into battle right into the meat of things and I, th- I think this already is is good stuff yeah so so, so it just starts off they're screaming in on their drop pods uh this is Olkin and his uh force from the, the sons of horus i thought this was one of the best descriptions i mean this idea has come up before in the books but the best descriptions of the idea that from the point of view of a planet being invaded by space marines this would be a terrifying sight and they would think these were this was a evil force coming to to destroy them and it describes that really well here when it says it says Loken imagined as they were landing for a moment Loken imagined what they would look like to the people of the coral city when the assault began warriors from another world soldiers from hell and uh, yeah. I thought I, I thought it was uh, done better than it is elsewhere and and yeah of course that's what you know um, it would be like with all these um, massive I, hulking dudes I designed but, to be so because like all the the world world eaters are over there doing their own thing the children the emperor's children doing their own thing so it's just like everybody's getting it from all ends it's um it's a real it's a real shit show down there but yeah i i totally agree that it uh, it has that and shows a little bit of progression in loken's character i suppose because he wouldn't have thought anything about how people perceive an invasion before before that no i mean it's sort of tried to depict him as being sort of thoughtful and uh caring a bit more about non-space brains than others but generally he's always just been like oh well let's i mean he does go back in this later on he's like maybe the world eaters have got the right idea and we should just like massacre everyone in the city (laughs) um yeah so they're they're coming down in drop pods and we'll get back to them but the bulk of the opening is taken up with lucius and the emperor's children lucius is the guy He's actually fighting a crew of local defenders whose armor is made out of stained glass. And that sounds amazing. Like yeah. some of these little depictions depictions are I, I would love to see it. But then like you there are endless video games and stuff 
and it it never quite works. I think it works best in books, actually, when you don't see it. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's imaginative stuff. I mean, the, the one the best uh, Warhammer forty thousand themed video game that I ever played was simply the one called Space Marine. Um, yeah. Because it really captured <laughs> what is the focus of these books, which is just like uh, charging into battle against a bunch of like orcs and chaos space marines and just yeah just just tromping through uh because the control of that game was like real clunky and it didn't look that great but um you killed a lot of things <laughs> and uh, no I, this is a compliment i think um it wasn't it wasn't a great game but it was a solid game and it it, it did what it wanted to do it was a solid seven out of ten <laughs> yeah, exactly. Period That's, of uh, the, the game that killed THQ. <laughs> the, the, you, if you remember, the end of that game was absolutely a disgrace because it was like there's another game coming, and it just ended. Oh, and yeah, I can't even remember. Yeah, it was something, something like that. Anyway, THQ went out of business. There will never be another follow-up to that game. Anyway, we're not here to review that game. Seven out of ten. <laughs> um, <laughs> We we find we learn a little bit more about Lucius here, in all in all of this bit, he is a complete psychopath. He's just killing loads of guards, but in the description of when he's doing it, he's always Lucius smiled as he decapitated this person, or uh, he smirked to himself at the bloody remains of the person. Uh, he laughed as he killed that kind of thing, yeah. and. Um, he he's quite a well drawn character for what he is. He like he is the most one dimensional uh, <laughs> character, but he's kind of likable at it. He he is in he's in no denial about who he is. Can I just say there's quite, there was a line that amused me here that wasn't it's far from the most amusing line that we'll encounter in this book. But um, so they're fighting these stained glass warriors. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> I don't know why I thought this was funny, but literally just the first line of the paragraph is. The silver armored palace guard started flying. Yes, yes, I remember that. I, was, I remember reading that and just going, "Oh, oh, here we go." <laughs> the aliens are flying now. I get you. Yeah, yeah. A- anyway, they start flying. Doesn't help them. They all die anyway. This is. They find out that flying is in is in no way a defense. So if I remember, the first flying guy kills one of Lucius's warriors, and then Lucius goes, "I tell you what, I'll do. I'll jump." And he jumps, and that—that's the—that's the cunning ploy that destroys the Silver Warrior. Well done, Lucius. Very clever. They are fighting towards the Precentor's Palace, which is the head of local government in the place. Lucius is desperate to be the person who is going to kill the chief architect of the rebellion, called uh, Prowl. I think he was called. Yeah. But after killing these uh, stained glass warriors, after killing these silver flying warriors, they cheer and make for the throne room. And frankly, this is it. This is if you if you don't listen on beyond this bit, <laughs> totally understand. It's not going to get better than this. Um, we we trailed the line last week. William, give it to us. Okay. So well, just before we get going, do you think? I queued you up, but okay, if we need context... Without no. context or with context, in terms of some of the themes, shall we say, of what these enemies... Give, it, give, give us what you think. I want people primed and ready. I want them to have everything they need in order to fully appreciate this line. Okay. No, I think maybe we should work backwards from the line. 
Um, okay. So, so we, you've primed it very well. You can maybe cut out these bits where I'm prevaricating. But um, so uh, the wine is this: Bolter fire stitched through the room, showering him with broken pieces of mosaic as he rolled into the cover of an enormous harpsichord. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just seen people marching into that room behind Lucius, just going, "Look at that harpsichord! <laughs> Enormous! The human mind can't encompass the reality of the sheer enormity of the harpsichord." It's a really outside. <laughs> I, I remember. I, I think I told the story in the last episode of like you text you texting me that line, and me um telling my <laughs> telling my brother-in-law, uh, who's a poet, and he was like, "What's this book? Give me this line. What is this book?" Like we were we'd had a, a bottle of wine or something at that point. And there was some drunkenness. He he's back in America where he lives now, and he um texted me that line. <laughs> he texted me recently just saying. And then you, didn't, you never sent me what that book is. Can you can you send me, can you send me that line again? I, I haven't stopped thinking about it. I love that. He was, wasn't just in the moment saying, "Oh, you've got to give me this book." He actually wants. No, he yeah, it's it's in his head, and I don't remember a better line than that. You know, that is so good. It's just the an enormous harpsichord. <laughs> wow. <It's> like, <laughs> He's like, it's just his battle senses, or you know, he's, he's sort of scanning all around him for some decent cover. cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. His eyes are lighted. His eyes are lighted. God, that, that his, harp- his eyes drawn by the sheer enormity of the harpsichord. <laughs> oh, that, um, that harpsichord is large enough to obscure my bulk, my um, space marine. <laughs> I'll fly behind there momentarily. Hark, hark, my brothers, join me in the safety in the shade of the harpsichord. Rally in the harpsichord. <laughs> really, Ben Counter knew he was onto a winner when he had that line because <laughs> the the rest of the scene is taken up in just real musical terms. It's basically a like a Wagnerian opera as Lucius kills and there's uh, these uh, war singers singing and chaos and music and death. It's described really well. It is like a cacophonous scene. That is where they encounter Pral, the leader of the local government. And he is in like a suit of armor, but with it has a backpack and it has like big trumpets <laughs> bending around from the backpack and pointing out in front of him, which he uses. He, he's a war singer, so he uses those as weapons. He's like a one-man band, basically. He's, yeah. he's like Dick Van Dyke, um, just killing folks. I mean, that's that's that gives you some context to the harpsichord. There is a big music thing going on in this. It doesn't really make the line any less funny. I mean, just but no. just explain that he's not just sort of pulled a harpsichord out of all any object that he could have chosen for Lucius to be taking cover behind. It's in fiction. I just mm. wonder wonder the the construction of that. Sent that wine, you know, like what he was uh, thinking, right? So I need to keep on referring to the music stuff in here because that's really <laughs> what we're going for. So and Lucius needs to find some cover in this bit. So bring what's him, an old bring timey, him together. <laughs> yeah, what's an old timey uh, operatic instrument? 
Is it a piano forte? No, it's a bit. It's a twee that. It's a harpsichord, is what it is. That's definitely <laughs> popped into his mind. Then he's like, but wait a minute, space marines are pretty big, you know? <laughs> the image drops. It's enormous. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, Lucius uh, Prowl gets in a few a few punches with his war trumpets, but Lucius kills him, and then he finds this kind of servitor playing this really ornate keyboard, which is uh, like I, I think not really quite described very well, but I think is in some way coordinating all the war singers across the, the world, and so he smashes that up, silences the music, and cut away to the world leaders. Basically, that's where we've had enough. Yeah, we've had enough of that good of that good lines. Um, let's go to the world leaders. Not given enough time, I don't think the world leaders. But like a little bit more. Before we finish up on this bit, I I kind of wanted to discuss a, a sort of ongoing discussion. Go back to it that we that we've had about yeah. the nature of okay. If if you didn't know already or we hadn't said, I'm pretty sure we have Lucius turns to chaos in the course of this book but <coughs> we've talked about this before how you, you've got characters who clearly are written as if they have a tendency for you know are over ambitious or delight too much in fighting or whatever that they might you know be have a tendency to perhaps turn evil but the books sort of generally don't go with a sort of that's just their character it's usually that makes them susceptible to chaos which comes in by some means it appears to me here that um, unless I'm wrong, that the music, magical music power that the the Istvanians are using here, that sort of gets into Lucius's head somehow and sort of turns him to chaos. Was that? I was expecting uh, this to go somewhere um, because it left me. Yeah, it, there's an awful lot about Lucius trying to satisfy the music or to bring back the music that has somehow taken him. Yeah, but. That the music is never described as chaos, and it, I mean he makes a—he's uh, really the only one I think so far that we know of that makes a reasoned decision to join with the armies of chaos. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not said explicitly, but there was this uh, bit when he's fighting Prowl under exchanging insults and so on. Basically, Lucius is saying, "Yeah, you can't win." There's loads of us will come until the planet is dust, uh, your little rebellion is over, you just don't know it yet and Prowl basically comes back and says no, um, I have fulfilled my duty and brought you here to this cauldron of fates, my work is done all that remains is to bud myself in the name of Father Istvan so, so they technically have their own sort of local planetary religion but the suggestion of that that he that he's somehow is aware whether he sees it in mm. different terms that he is a part of some sort of chaos master plan to bring about the heresy or what or something and mm-hmm. um, that's what i took from that but yeah you're right i don't think it ever was made explicit which, which, which is yeah, unusual no, for I, these books <laughs> well no it's not but uh, what would have been interesting would have been to know what does this music mean like what what is going on inside lucius's head but anyway let's move on world leaders yeah. So they're, they're attack, the world leaders are attacking uh, the Temple of Song, which is uh, the religious heart of, uh, of the Coral City. And they're basically attacked by the populace, just uh, not really warriors, they're just people uh, that have been whipped into a frenzy by the Song of the War Singers. And the world leaders weren't really expecting this kind of force thrown against them. 
and they just slaughter them. There's no, it's just some really good warriors against a huge mass of people. They're slowed down by it, but they're not really put in danger. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. They, I suppose they come into it a bit more when the betrayal is revealed. We spoke a little bit about Loken being with Sons of Horus uh, in the drop pods. Uh, the drop pods sort of hit some battlements yeah. uh, as they're dropping, so they don't make landfall. They're kind of stuck in midair, and they have to kind of MacGyver their way out of the of the drop pods. And they're all scattered about the city, um, and it gives a, a little bit of, of, of time dedicated to seeing what Loken sees as he looks over the magnificence of the city. And it's really well written, and gives really excellent impression of this like masterpiece of of architecture and culture that's about to be completely destroyed i would say of all the books or halves of books if you like that we've discussed in this series so far this is by far the one i've most enjoyed because it's like yeah it's it's doing what generally these writers do well and ben kenner seems to do it better than even the others maybe yeah so Loken. Uh, regroups with the rest of the Sons of Horus and they find themselves in different parts of these spires they try and use the Vox but it's been masked in some way and then they made up with Torgaden at which point needless to say I sort of groan a bit <laughs> they plan their sort of plan of attack has just really the shit has hit and the fan they're not really able to do what they had planned to do talked about the Sons of Horus the world eaters and the emperor's children and there's also the death guard involved in this big battle and they're not discussed as much because most we mostly see them from the point of view of the the titan the deus irae and that's where you've got the likes of uh, titus cassar and jonah arakin who cropped up in the last uh, couple of books um and the death guard are as far as we can tell they're with the support of this titan they're sort of fighting through trenches uh, what else is going on at this point well at, at tarvitz um as we spoke about in the last episode uh, got himself out of going to the planet uh in order so that he could be closer to eidolon who he doesn't trust so he's kind of walking about the ship with nothing to do to be honest and he feels th the movement of the ship it would only move that way if it was planning a bombardment and he's like well hold on a second here you can't bombard four legions on a on a planet so he goes to the the decks where all the gun carriages and stuff are and he sees virus bombs being loaded into these these guns in ready for in readiness for the bombardment and he knows that the virus bombs are the legion's deadliest weapon they are a shocking overkill and can only be used when the war master gives the explicit say so and he's thinking well his a third of his legion are down there he can't he can't just stand by and do, do nothing so he he puts it all together himself in that time that this is his first realization of the betrayal he knows that it's it, it'll be done with uh fulgrim his primarch's know-how and it'll be done at the say so of the war master so he's like everyone that we trust has betrayed us so he tries to do the right thing and get a war hawk and make a mad dash towards the planet um eidolon 
spots him, sends a few fighters after him, and uh, Garu intercedes. Nathaniel Garu from the Death Guard intercedes. He's on the Eisenstein at the at the minute, and he investigates. He he sees some Emperor's children fighters going after one of their own warhawks. So he talks to Tarvitz and Saul basically tells him all of this in the space of a couple of minutes and they're honor brothers or something like that and Nathaniel's like right I trust you I can't believe this but I'll, I'll help and yeah. so what did he destroy the fighters or did he do something yeah just he, to... he shot down the fighters and I I thought this bit was really thrilling actually I found it really exciting because I couldn't remember what happened and yeah it was just really tense well written and I also thought like Garrow and Tarvitz here it's their sort of brotherhood and their ideals as expressed here is is the only convincing portrayal of I think just about if you if you want space marines to be high minded sort of warriors uh, looking to create a better universe which is not always what is intended or or you know what you what you want to get out of these books but if you do want that this is the the one bit where that's convincingly portrayed I would say between these two Mercedes and Keeler uh, this is kind of following on from where we left the last part they're hiding uh, they've spent weeks months uh, keeping Keeler safe and she is still basically ill she's sick Carol is getting sicker and sicker as well and at one point Keeler uh, wakes up screaming and uh, faints yet again um, but basically tells Cinderman that they are betrayed and that he has to tell the, the faithful that uh, they've been betrayed by the war master. So he organizes um, a, a meeting. He's, at, he's now known amongst the faithful as the Saints Apostle and he's speaking to a gathering of thousands and it's also voxed to the entire fleet. So there is a, uh, a large rebellion already underway and the, I really enjoyed this bit. He tells them of the vision, of the treachery, but he also speaks of anti-crusade, basically. He says, what is this crusade being about? And this is the only bit that I can remember that is actually anti-war. Uh, they're saying they're still colonialists, like they're still totally believing in the emperor and the imperial truth, but um, they don't want to spread it with war so they're they're not heroes they're still looking to destroy other people's cultures and replace it with their own but at least they're sort of questioning what place this armed force of space marines can have in a in a worthwhile empire which i suppose is a step forward and, and like the idea of absorbing planets into the imperium without fighting them is something that people have mentioned throughout these books but it's not really something you've we've seen in these yeah. books. you know it's, it's usually but i mean yeah. but i mean they also refer to planets that when they arrive they're like delighted to see the imperium of mankind and you know they willingly go yeah. into the imperium and that it's done peacefully and that's not yeah like you see we've not seen much of that but um that's I guess Carol Sinderman is in favour of that kind of thing uh, like you're saying still colonialist and all the rest of it but not obliterating half yeah, the people like a, I, the, I get the sort of feeling that they're that sort of uh, 
benevolent imperialism of like you know the 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 church of england or something at the height of the british empire they wanted to go and minister amongst the you know the natives and spread christianity and their culture in that way but they still they still really weren't accepting of allowing this other culture to exist without their input and um sorry just on this point uh i just recently read the special edition of the first book well i read the the short story at the end of it and it's quite interesting get enough sorry (laughs) short stories are good there's another good one and um it actually talks about this exact thing it's about uh well it's basically going back to the earlier crusade before all the stuff that happens in these books and it's it's saying that the the emperor and horus they didn't want to you know ideally they wouldn't have fought anyone on this mission and i think there's even a bit where they say they didn't really like that it come to be called the crusade and stuff like this um okay yeah um so chorus uh, is told by Mal- um, Malagorst that this transmission has taken place and that these these remembrancers are starting to become a bit of a hassle because basically Mercedes and Euphrates and Kirill Sinderman are debating whether they should go to this meeting that Horus has arranged aren't they and they're, they're saying it's obviously a trap yeah uh, but you free yeah I, th- this is this is a, a sort of action movie trope which i've never understood where it's like it's a trap i know but we have to go <laughs> you're like no no yeah you're free to cue her she's like no we have to go was it was she doing that so that they would sort of she knew what was going to happen so she she was saying like you have to see um yeah for as much as an obvious trap as it is you have to see what you're going to be shown because it's important to experience the horror of what it is. Yeah. Uh, so they, they go to this, um, what is it? It's basically all of the remembrancers, all of the iterators in one room. And Horus tells them that the crusade is over. The emperor has abandoned them and that he is now going to uh, lead a new crusade where he will rule the galaxy. And there are picked screens, video screens from all over the surface of Istvan, showing them the real horror of war. And they think that this is what they need to see, but it isn't quite yet because they see, and this is the first time we actually hear about it, the first virus bombs falling from orbit. And they realize that the betrayal has, is, you know, sort of happening right where they are now. So they see the bombs going down, uh, the, the remembrancers, and before this, Tarvitz has been hurriedly trying to tell people. Tarvitz has told Lucius, uh, and he says it is a betrayal. Yeah. So he brings him on board. Lucius tells Loken about that it is a full-on, uh, full-on betrayal, and Loken is obviously more willing to believe it than other people because of what he knows, and he. Uh, Tarvitz also goes and fights beside Erlen of the World Eaters and just says, there are bombs coming, it's an Estvanian weapon. Yeah. Um, and then, then they see the bombs falling. No, correct me if I'm wrong, because I genuinely, when I was trying to figure this out, I genuinely flicked back to see if I'd missed a bit. But we talked a bit about, in the last episode, how it appeared that 
Ben Counter was thought there were some things not quite working with the series and tried to shift around the characters a bit and and make well in this book make Tarvitz more prominent. Woken's still prominent, right? But yeah, right. So the first that we hear of Woken being aware of these uh, bombs falling and the betrayal is when he says. Um, it's just a, uh, a section that starts with him saying it started and they see the bombs falling and then we are told that Lucius has told him about this. Yes. And I just thought, like, I was like, wait a minute, have I missed the bit where... Woken, where he did tell him? Yeah, where Woken finds out, finally, that they are being betrayed. Because, like, that's what the last two books have been building up to, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And here it happens off camera, basically. <laughs> Yeah, no, I had the very same feeling because, yeah, it's done in like Lucan saw the bombs falling. He thought back to the moment when Lucius told him about the rebe- <laughs> <laughs> about the betrayal. And I was like, hold up, you can't really? Are yeah. you doing it that way? Are you doing it like it happens off camera in remembrance? And then they're uh, just, and it is, they're just sort of into the action after that. They know the betrayal is happening and they're, they're just. Uh, escaping the bombs, I guess, at that point. But, yeah, um, yeah. No, it was it was an, a weird one. I didn't really flick back. I just thought. I, I remember beforehand thinking, well, how does Loken know? How uh, they've described Lucius and Tarvitz meeting. They've described Tar- Tarvitz meeting uh, with Erlen. <coughs> how does uh, Loken know? And then yeah, it's just like Loken watched the bombs fall. Yeah. He remembered back to this, and I was like, "Oh, which really? Is, that's a bit, that's a bit clunky." Which is about the queerest indication we've had that Ben Counter isn't that interested in writing Loken or is actively trying to. Yeah, write. yeah, and and really, Loken was the protagonist of the first two books. He is at best co-star. Yeah. In this book, at best, I would say maybe sixty forty in favor of Tarvitz. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as the main protagonist here. Anyhow, for those space brains that do not get into cover, the effects of these bombs are pretty unpleasant. Uh, yeah, like I sorry to interrupt, no, but no. the 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 battle before this, I thought had been knockabout good fun. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you know what I mean? It was like this is this is all good stuff. You know, it's like salivating at all these Just- like. Some, all these corpses some good harmless like beings being obliterated en masse by, by gunfire and swords exactly <laughs> terrific stuff um, but but um, th- at, at this point it's uh, like it goes from harmless genocide <laughs> to to really quite like it was gruesome it's really horrible uh, there's a, a quote here uh, its victims literally dissolved into a soup of rancid meat within minutes of exposure, leaving little but sloshing suits of rotted armour. Even many of those who reached the safety of the sealed bunkers died in agony as they shut the doors, only to find that they had brought the lethal virus inside with them. Entire kingdoms and vassal states across the surface were obliterated in minutes. Ancient cultures that had survived old night and endured the horror of invasion a dozen times over fell without even knowing why. Millions dying in screaming agony as their bodies betrayed them and fell apart, reducing them to rotted, decaying matter. That's horrifying. That's yeah. real. That's, That's it. It's really gruesome. Even by the generally horrific consequences of battle, even by those standards, this is some pretty extreme destruction. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd actually picked out the exact same quote about the soup of rancid meat. 
yeah yeah it's it's bad but at, at the same time as this happening the remembrancers are in that room seeing it happen seeing these liquefying corpses and this is the the horror that they've needed to see both the literal horror of it and the betrayal of it at which point keeler says that they need to go and leads them up to our old fave <laughs> Ayakton Cruise is back. Who steps up in their hour need Ayakton Cruise? Ayakton Cruise. <laughs> so he, he's Ayakton Cruise more. <laughs> Shame on you. Uh, he's as horrified as anyone because he's a he's a good old fashioned warrior. There is a terrific quote that Keeler says to him. Like even Keeler, a human being, is patronizing to this this person. He say, she says. You cling to the old ways and wish them to return with the fond nostalgia of the venerable. <laughs> he's like, he's like a sucker for like a, I don't know, like a Hovis advert or something. Yeah. <laughs> she, was, she was like a, a bread delivery boy cycling out along a cobbled street <laughs> or whatever. The, uh, yeah. I long for the old ways. <laughs> I wish them to return. With the fond nostalgia of the venerable. God, God. Ayakton Cruz doesn't know he's being patronised at this point. He says he'll get them off the ship because he promised Loken in the other part of the book this is what he'll do. So he takes them down to the Thunderhawks. But uh, who's there? Magard. Everyone forgot this person existed. Uh, if you have as well, that's totally understandable. He's, he's a terrible character. He doesn't serve a purpose. Luckily enough, He's dead now, so it's fine. <laughs> but um, sorry, just before, just in the initial bit with the Acton Cruise, or, or the way he's depicted here, is it like Euphrates Keywords kind of brought him out of his slumber, kind of, uh, or or awoken, telling him to help them, has brought him, you know, he comes back to life to, to be like hard enough to beat Maggard in battle. But anyway, like one of the things, and I don't recall this being a feature of his character in the previous books, but I might be wrong. No, I, I didn't. Yeah, it, it was like you've um, you've sort of subsumed your nat your natural uh, loyal character under all of this sort of uh, the weight that the Legion has put on you, and you've just kind of gone along with it. And it but his his whole point is that he hasn't gone along with it, and that everyone he's an outsider because of that. Yeah, and uh, well, they it says here that he's like he was a sycophant, or I think it actually uses that term like he just sort of yeah, like, like you've just described, he went along. He went along. Yeah. And, and but previously he was just depicted as a bore basically like who you know like you say if anything he was like saying oh no it was better in my day kind of thing so uh, yeah anyway that was a wee bit weird but uh, but we love him we still we, love him we love him um you can't even you can't even kill Magard on his own though that's the thing like you're, you're like we, we've spoken about what is it when a space marine gets this old he's a crap space marine like <laughs> He needs the help of Cinderman, an old, normal human man, to kill Magard. That's embarrassing. Although, but he does it. Compared to how he's been depicted before, you kind of think, I thought he was going to die in this bit, actually. Because um, oh. I thought he's not going to overcome Magard, because they've kind of um, built him up as being very scary and coming and murdering people and stuff. And uh, and Acton Cruz, I thought, was going to have a heroic death here, but he, he pulled through, which I was delighted about. <laughs> yes, I hope we see more of him. Uh, that well, that's an interesting point. We've read ahead uh, in theory ten years ago. I can't remember a fucking thing that happens. So uh, I, essentially, I am. Uh, I don't know 
what happens now. So hopefully more of him. Uh, but as he's leading them away to the Thunderhawk, um, Cinderman has kind of realized what has gone on in the room with all the remembrancers that they needed to be saved from. And that is basically that Horus has had them all killed. And that's a, a fairly grim thought for him. After this period of murder, uh, Horus is told that the virus uh, has done its work. It's wiped out the planet and that it's burnt itself out. But that the, the explosive gases that have been left over uh, are at a lethal level. And he orders them to be set on fire, which caused this surface pl- or the planet-wide surface <laughs> fire to spread across killing even more people um before we get onto that this, the description of that there's just in, in the in the stuff about the virus phase of this attack i just just wanted to highlight what i thought was another really good bit of descriptive writing and so mostly uh, when the virus first uh, hits the description we have of is its impact on the space brains who are down there but there's a bit uh, at the start of one chapter where um it describes what's how it affects the Estvanians. So it's, it's saying there's people thronging the streets, dying and keening their hatred and fear up at the sky, imploring their gods to deliver them. But then it says, a war singer soared overhead, trying to ease the agony and terror of their deaths with her songs. But the virus found her too. And instead of singing the praises of Istvan's gods, she coughed out black plumes as the virus tore through her insides. She fell like a shot bird, twirling towards the dying below. As the fire burns across uh, the world, the folks inside... The folks? What am I talking <laughs> about? Uh, the people inside the Deus Eri, the Titan, uh, Titus Kassar, uh, Jonah Arokin, and uh, Turnit, the Princeps, they're all having a big set too, because... Uh, Kassar realizes that Turnit is in on this. He uh, knew about the bombardment beforehand. They're in a sort of a, a gunfight, and what's the uh, Jonah sort of steps up, points a gun at Kassar, and says, "It's it's not too late. We can we can sort this out. Let's just go with it. Uh, let's stop this talk about religion and the emperor and all this stuff. Let's just." You know, kind of hide. Stop being so divisive. I just want to. Yeah. I, I just want to drive my own Titan. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's the worst centrist imaginable. <laughs> um, at which point they see uh, like this dozens of of uh, ships come into land, and it turns out that <laughs> they're the rest of the world eaters. And Angron Angron jumps out of one of the ship, one of the ships, and he is full-on ultimate warrior at this point <laughs> he's re- he's running to the ring he's shaking those ropes <laughs> he's tiring himself out before even the match can start um it's it's good stuff it's really good stuff um i'm i'm mixed on angron don't know whether i like him or not but i liked his entrance just, sorry just before this you discussed how tarvitz had been running around trying to warn people about what was happening but the with the the world eaters, he hadn't. He thought it was best to just say to them, "We're getting attacked." It's the Athenians. Yeah. And um, then, so after this firestorm, Tarvitz and the world eaters emerge from their, excuse me, shelter. After this has happened, and they come out to this scene, a vision of hell, as it says, it's all ablaze, plumes of fire. So the planet's been completely 
uh, transformed, and it says it's unrecognisable as that to that w which they had fought across only minutes before. And the reason I highlight this this bit is because it's it's a difficulty in these books dealing with or writing about how these space marines deal with the fact of betrayal by their own leader, the war master, mm. and um, in a way that's what the whole you know the whole <laughs> the whole first books were first two books were building up towards that and, and like we say with Loken they kind of just had the actual moment he obviously had it was building up all sorts of suspicions um, but the actual moment it's revealed was kind of happened off camera which wasn't ideal I don't think um, uh, but I just thought this in this case it was done really well it's obviously quite a difficult thing for them to deal with without writing because you know they're trying to write fast paced books you know they, they're they're not really books the type of book best place to you know deal with someone's really you know wrought internal process of dealing with this you know so mm -hmm. i think the way they do it here i just thought it was really effective in that it was simple but also gave me a sense of the gravity of the feeling that this caused for for the space marine so so the the uh, they come out from this into the scene of carnage and it says why was all erwin could ask i don't know said tarvitz wishing he had more to tell the world eater this wasn't the asvanians was it asked erwin tarvitz wanted to lie but he knew that the world eater uh, would see through him instantly. No, he said it wasn't. We were betrayed. And Tarbots nodded. Why? Repeated Erwin. I have no answer for you, brother. But if they hope to have killed on one fell swoop, then they've failed. And if so, for, so from there it gets back into yeah, let's fucking smash them up. Um, but uh, <laughs> usual chat. But I just thought like for a minute there, just with really spare language, it just gave me it gave you a sense of him having a lot to deal with, but um, without going into it in great depth. And I thought that's kind of was getting performing the trick right there of just um, writing it in such a way where you, you did feel like they were experiencing something powerful but not actually without having to actually go into describe, <laughs> describing that feeling very much you know so angron is uh is now attacking his former warriors uh erlin says you've never seen angron in full battle tarvitz you need to get out of here <laughs> and at which point tarvitz is like no, no, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm not going to run. He sees Angron and then he runs. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's um, it's great, and it's not like it's not a brave run. It's a, uh, it's like he's herring, he's getting the hell out of there. Uh, at which point he sees like the corpse of Erlin like fly over his head or something, and he's like, "I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> See y'all later." Horus at this point. Uh, is watching this on a pict. He's still in the room with the Remembrancers and he's furious. This is obviously a betrayal on the part of Angron because there, there was meant to be nobody else down there. The The plan was to just bombard the rest of the city into dust but Angron's down there so he's like, well, best go down there too. You know, let's turn this into a positive and let's go and kill everybody else who's remaining. The next stage of the book starts with Loken and Tarvitz. They've retreated to uh, the palace again and have clearly been fighting a rearguard action for days. They, they Basically, they're just trying to play for time until the Emperor or the other legions can arrive and uh, punish Horus and the rest of the legions for their betrayal. Yeah. Um, but yeah. a, lot, a lot of the time they kind of know that they're likely to die, basically. Definitely. I think I think that's like a, a way to motivate themselves and their soldiers, but yeah. they know that they're 
kind of going to die anyway. Lucius uh, leads an attack. Uh, remember, he's... I, we've already given this away. He's going to betray them, but he's still on the good side at the minute. He leads an attack against the forces of Eidolon, who's now on the planet, uh, and looks for the chaplain and kills him and yeah. cuts off his head and takes his helmet. Yeah. So he's got the... gets a helmet with the microphone that is... Uh, allows him to talk to the um, part of his legion that he's ostensibly fighting against. And organises a meeting with Eidolon and says, I can, I can get you into the palace. I can give you the rest of these rebels. All I want is to rejoin the legion because I have things to do. I want to be great and I want my greatness to be recognised by the Primarch. And that is him making that decision uh, about rejoining the Legion and joining with Chaos. Tarvit says that uh, Lucius has informed him that he's broken the the communications uh, network of the traitors and that he's learned that the rest of the Mournival, Horsax Command and uh, uh, Abaddon, will be in uh, such and such a basilica at, at, at a time and uh, Loken and Torgaden have said right we'll go and meet them face to face I was expecting that it to be a trap but it's not it's just a face to face meeting where they have a fight Yeah. Uh, but before they get to that <laughs> this is a really funny bit Loken encounters Karn who we met in the last book he is uh, like a chief crazy warrior of the world eaters and Karn has just completely lost it and there is no more of the you know heroic warrior he's just now a crazy killer and they get into a scrap and it really looks like Karn's about to kill Loken <laughs> but, but uh, just in the nick of time he gets bulldozed <laughs> a bulldozer just completely runs him over impales him crushes him and Loken just walks off. He's cool. He's just like, whew, that's lucky enough. And they go and reach uh, the Basilica where Abaddon and Aximand are waiting for them. Here I was like, there's going to be warriors like uh, festooned around, hidden until uh, a key point where they will betray them even more. But it's not. Aximand comes across as really sad. Like he, if you remember in the last book, he really didn't want to take Horus when he was dying to Davin he was convinced to do it by the lodge and he only did it because he was out of his mind with worry that uh, Horus would die Yeah. Uh, so he's really sad that it's come to this he really doesn't want to fight anybody but yet fight a fight does happen it's it's not particularly remarkable to be honest yeah, I mean, in theory, this is kind of the climactic scene of all of these first three books, because you know the the Mournival has been the the focus of most of those three books, uh, yeah, and it's been about Woken gradually warning. There's some suspicious things going on, and the Mournival splitting into two factions. So this should be like a dramatic, um, you know, exciting payoff, but it just isn't really it's sort of but I, I was kind of kind of happy with where it was was that 
they had split and were kind of giving each other the cold shoulder. <laughs> um, uh, th- this wasn't really necessary, but I suppose it was in these books. You got to have a fight. Torgaden and Horus are fighting. Uh, Eidolon has broken in with the help of Lucius to the palace and has uh, killed all the wounded soldiers and the medical staff. So obviously he's bad, but we knew that already. Tarvitz goes to try and find Lucius because he still thinks he's on his side. He's still a friend. Finds Lucius, but Lucius is like giving himself another ritual scar on his face and says that this one is for you, Tarvitz. And they have a they have their own friend against former friend battle. And this one is a lot better, I think. Uh, Tarvitz gets the best of this one. Uh, Lucius gets away, but not before being fairly seriously wounded. Cut back to uh, Abaddon in a bit of a bit of a situation, but uh, at that point, Torgaddon gets his head cut off to the to the cheers of everyone. No doubt, I was like, yeah, I kind of wanted to feel like that. You know what I mean? I kind of <laughs> yeah. wanted to feel. I did. I mean, he, I've kind of found, in a sense laughing at the badness of his jokes to be quite funny in its own right so in that sense I was a bit like oh that's a shame so that that allows a bit of time for uh, Abaddon to get back he basically destroys Loken like he smashes his spine he tears him up completely and Loken is saved by <laughs> the kind of the house that they're in is stepped on <laughs> by by the titan <laughs> Which, which is hilarious, hilarious picture. Just this this enormous foot crushing them. But uh, again, a bit weird. But what is uh, important about this is that presumably Loken is dead. That's at least from Abaddon's position. And they're like, at least it's done. And Axeman says to Abaddon, God, how did it come to this? How did it come to this? And the band's like, it's done. At least it's over. No point in thinking about it. And they depart uh, back to the the mothership. But Abaddon is like, yeah, there was a Axeman was a little bit reticent there, so obviously he needs to be watched. Yeah. And that's that's a really good sort of uh, depiction of how the Legion has changed, and that nobody with this betrayal means that you you can't trust anyone anymore, which was the pillar of everyone's. Is the the groundwork upon which all of the relationships in the Legion sat, and now that that's gone, there is no more trust to be had. And um, in the fight with the Emperor's children, Tarvitz, when he Marines on his side turned up and shot at Lucius, after his fight with Lucius, they saw an opportunity to um, they saw a mistake in Eidolon's approach and were able to kind of have a counter attack. So they were, despite that betrayal by Lucius, they were managing to get themselves back into a good position and it's about this time where Horus himself, the war master up on the thing is, not Horus Axeman down the planet, decides that there's been enough of this and he'll just bomb the planet again Yeah, every, everyone is called back there are by all accounts just a, a few a handful of hundreds of warriors loyalist warriors left and he orders the planet to be bombed and that's really the end but there is a, a good discussion between Malagorst and Horus about uh, Malagorst basically says this has been a disaster for us uh, we've wasted loads of time we've wasted loads of warriors all the rest of our plans have kind of been scuppered 
as he's talking with Horace, it's clear he is reticent in, in giving his real opinion, which is not how the relationships used to be. And you can see how that is the case, that Horace has changed. He's angry all the time. He's become a darker version of himself. Uh, nobody really wants to tell him the truth about the fuck-ups that he's made because he has made these fuck-ups. Um, it's, it's a good position. It's a good position to kind of leave it on that although they've had a victory here, they have succeeded in purging these elements of their uh, legions. It's been their own sort of stupidity and um, desire to fight all the time that has led them to just lose loads of soldiers when it wasn't necessary to do so. Um, they've lost loads of time. It's just a, a pointless battles that has led them to this situation. That is the end of Galaxy and Flames. It's the end of that starting trilogy. I was struggling after the first two books. After this book, I am delighted i'm you know i'm ready to i'm ready to ply on and go to the next one to be honest with you that was really enjoyable yeah me too i, I i'm like yeah as i was I think the first time i read them i was like yeah i can't wait to to read more in this and then i think <laughs> not to puncture this enthusiasm i think i remember feeling like slightly disappointed by uh the the ones that came after this not being quite so grand not being so um consequential you know, not each book not feeling as consequential as this book had in terms of um, all the stuff that happened in, in the overall storyline. And to be to be honest, I I'm really keen on on the fact that they're not part of a another trilogy or something. I'm, I I kind of like one shots in that yeah. sense. I'm actually really looking forward to the uh, the first. There's a number in the series. There's a number of books which are collections of short stories, and the first one. According to the front of um, my copy of Galaxy and Flames, the first one is um, Book 10, which is a collection of short stories, which reminds me, this is the short story at the back of the special edition, and it's going back, sorry, special edition of Horus Rising, um, the first book, and this is going back to an earlier point in the Crusade, and it's um, the Sons of Horus going about doing their business and, and, and like I mentioned earlier on um, there's a focus here on like this particular system of planets that they're encountering virtually all of them they've have come into the Imperium peacefully it says and it's an emphasis on the fact that at this point Horus wants to do things that way and sort of sees war as a last resort kind of thing but anyway they do get into some fighting here because they they encounter a planet where there's a guy who was from Earth at one point and got banished has basically made these sort of might be one creature with like 70 hands or whatever you know like um, he's made kind of monsters basically as they're portrayed here biomech obscenities they call them we've got Sejanus again here sort of head in the fight against these guys um, but uh, the real reason I brought this up was because there's just You've talked about word sours, Neil, before in this book, but this is a good one. Um, so <laughs> okay. this is an entire paragraph, a description of this planet. Here we go. Right. 
Bone spires of rock rose like wines of fangs from miasmal lowlands <laughs> and plutonic lakes that were toxic beyond any reason of local envirochemistry. Striated clouds raced across the skies, low and dense, thick with pollutants driven by crossed winds of blast zone force. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was like, I I didn't think that was going to go any further. I was like, bone spires of rock. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> but there's a lot in there. Now. <laughs> there really is. Okay, so bone spires of rock. Let's break this down bit by bit. Bone spires of rock. What was the next bit? The next bit was my favorite, I think. Are you referring to the miasmal lowlands and plutonic lakes that were toxic beyond any reason of local envirochemistry? <laughs> 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 I'm scratching I'm scratching my chin. The the local envirochemistry would not predict this. <laughs> I mean the sheer oh, miasmality of those lowlands is truly well, miasma is one of one of the favourite words of Black Library. Uh, and one of mine as well. I do love a good miasma. Give it to us again. Give it from start to the to the the chemistry. But okay, bone spires of rock rose like wines of fangs from miasmal lowlands and plutonic lakes that were toxic beyond any reason of local envirochemistry. <laughs> that's a full, I, that's a full that's, I just can't. What it's like? It's it's like a quadway mixed <laughs> metaphor. It's it's like bone spires of rock. Yeah, lines of fangs. Yeah, that, that's a total like, <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> I, I, I imagine in the the WhatsApp group that whenever Ben Counter, which he of course he would have done, he would have said, "I've got this blinder of a line about a harpsichord." <laughs> uh, whenever, he, <laughs> whenever he put that in, I bet you nobody responded for days, like just didn't respond. And then the first person who did respond didn't mention the line about the harpsichord it just caused it co- it just caused too much strife in their <laughs> lives it was just that we how am i how how i'm writing the next book i'm writing the next book how am i going to do that like he's it was, G- it's a huge harpsichord <laughs> G- james swallow was like i felt daunted as it was you know but <laughs> indeed the might of dan abner the harpsichord of Ben counter <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to let the fact the fact that WhatsApp probably didn't come into existence until like eight years after these books started. I'm not going to let that get in the no. way. Of my, no, well, <laughs> substitute substitute whichever. Like they were faxing each other or something, or whatever. whatever As we know, everyone did in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2008. It's not that long ago. Yeah. Um, so, well, did, do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I feel like we've covered we've, much we've totally squeezed that uh book dry so in effect in in if we pray see what we've just said there's a huge harpsichord <laughs> and lots of things happened around it basically yeah. <laughs> that's that's what you should take away from this book yeah. you need to read it you need to read that line in context it is magnificent and this is i would as a piece of entertainment i would legitimately recommend this book absolutely absolutely it needs to be read so thanks everyone for listening it's 
really enjoyable doing this podcast. We really enjoy doing it. If you want to tell uh, your friends, your family, anyone that you think might be interested, that's the best way of, of uh, getting more listeners. Um, uh, so if you wanted to do that, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, again, we're at uh, horseheretics at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us there. William, anything else to say before we sign off for good? Nope. Looking forward to the next one. And uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Brilliant. What what is the date of the next one? Just so that we can let everyone know. It's uh, this one comes out on the 29th, so it'll be two weeks after that, which will be the 12th of August. So uh, join us again then uh, for that. Uh, and until then, see you guys later. See you.